Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. So then this all generates a question, and one of which I want to look at this morning. You're in Titus chapter 1. What do you do if you live in a pagan society? How do you thrive in a pagan society? Can you thrive in a pagan society? What's the steps we should take? Um, we have there is kind of at the top of your notes, Titus chapter 1 <clears throat> and verse 12. And, of course, Titus is left there at the island of Crete to establish elders in every city, plant churches to preach the gospel. And um, there's so much uh, error and evil that is present. And speaking of one of the prophets, one of the Cretan prophets, he says here in verse number 12, one of them, even a prophet of their own, said, Cretans, and he identifies three things, always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. Notice verse 13, what does it say? This witness is... So he wasn't just quoting this prophet, whoever this unnamed Cretan prophet was, and plugging this in there and saying, hey, this is a, a general view. Rather, preserve for us in the word of God is the, the statement that what this gentleman was saying, what this prophet is saying is absolutely an accurate description of that culture. Let's break that down for a minute. I know it's not in your notes. If someone could be called a liar, now I know that politicians use that word so often. But that is a violation of God's law. To refer to someone and to affirm it in verse number three that someone's a liar, you've got a society that has no standard of morality or truth. Number two, evil beast. The word beast here is very interesting. We spoke of this several, several months ago. We were going through Revelation. There's two different words of beast. One has the idea of beast that would be offered for a sacrifice, and the other one is a venomous beast. And the latter here is what's used. They're a dangerous society. It's a place of injury. If you confront them, if there is a confrontation with their society, danger can occur. And then he talks about slow bellies. There's no pursuit of moral excellence. You know, that's one of the things we see about our society. People talk about one of the greatest uh, things about America, and at least this is true to a point even still today, is their ingenuity their ingenuity, their ability to consider and to invent and to think. Well, a slow belly would be the opposite of that. There's no ingenuity. They're busy about everything in life. They're slothful about things. Again, a direct reference, if you will, something to look at as a society that has at its basis no foundation in truth. Note your notes here. We are blessed to live in the United States, which which has had such a storied Christian influence. The presence of this influence is widely seen. Here's your first blank in our foundational documents. You know, whether you're talking about the Declaration of Independence or whether you're talking about the U.S. Constitution, uh, the invocation of God's name is readily given. I have used this phrase the la last week and probably will this, uh, of nature and nature's God. You'll find that phrase in several portions of the founding documents. You'll see the presence of this influence in political speeches. Um, when I was in grade school, we had to read and be very familiar with certain portions of inaugural speeches that presidents made, particularly some of the founding, like Washington, et cetera, and Jefferson, and um, in almost all of those speeches. And I would note, 
it is such a tradition, it seemingly is present, yea, in all presidential speeches. There's some mention of God's name being invoked. You see it in cities and towns' names. I think about the number of towns and cities that you'll find scattered across the United States whose names are directly taken from the scriptures. You know, in Pennsylvania, you know, you'd have like Goshen, Zion, all of those. Where did they come from? Well, they came out of the word of God. That's where they got those names. Corinth. I don't know why they did that one, but anyway, I'll continue. (laughs) Cities and towns and names. You'll even find it on our currency because all of the currency since the 50s is printed with In God We Trust. Yet, as we diagnosed last week, our society looks much different than it did 30 years ago. How do believers behave themselves in a society that is pagan? It's a question worthy of our attention. Some would argue that as a Christian, we should, we should lead in a culture war in a culture war against the enemy. Probably revisit that in a little bit. Obviously, as Christians, we are gravely disappointed to see our country abandon all truth and embrace such a foolish world view. Abandon all truth and embrace a, such a foolish world view. Our biblical beliefs will no doubt put us in conflict with culture. We're on a collision course, right? If you have a biblical worldview, you look at so many of the hot-button issues of today, and you don't even have to think about them. You know, when they talk about uh, social nets that would fund people's gender changes and stuff like that, automatically, how's a Christian feel about that? Is that because you're a Republican or independent or whatever? No, it's because you've adhered to the Word of God and you're like, that's not natural. Just like we did with abortion and everything else. You, you don't have a worldview that is secular. You have a worldview that's directly tied with what the God of creation, our Savior, put the parameters on. And so you're on a collision course because you're in a culture that does not have the same worldview that you have. And going forward in society, as more paganism begins to be embraced and embraced and embraced, what now happens to you? Greater conflict. We ought not to neglect the privileges afforded us by our nation's heritage. And I couldn't put all this in here, but what I'm saying is don't get to the point where you say, you know what, I'm not going to vote. I'm not going to enjoy the liberties that I have. I'm just going to hide my head in the sand and pretend and just let what happens. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm letting you know that our society's worldview is pagan, and they're trending in desperately in this, this era, and you and I are looking for a city which hath foundations. And our worldview is going to be biblical, and what God said is going to be the answer for all that ails humanity. It's an easy thing to get to where fear and anger are the prevailing responses. That's that last sentence in the introduction. Fear and anger are the prevailing responses of believers. Mad. Now, we're disappointed. I I forget the word I used there, gravely disappointed. But fear and anger really should never be prevailing responses that a Christian truly has. Let me give you two passages, and 
We limit it to two. There's others. I mentioned here 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of, what is it? Fear. Now, we have the fear of God. I'm looking for notes like you have. Here we go right here. We have the fear of God, but our life should not be dictated by a, by a spirit, an emotion that directs every step out of a direct fear of the society around us. Um, we speak of America, have been in existence 240 years. What, what did Christians do when they didn't have an America? What they did? And some of them lived in pagan societies. Did they all just stick their head under their sand? Or were there no Christians until America? Fear can't be the prevailing response. Uh, God has not given a spirit of fear, but of power and of a love. And if you, if you want to write this note by it, that word sound, it means healthy. Healthy. Now, it's, it's not talking about uh, some special diet there. It's talking about, a, and you know how to have a healthy mind? Don't give it over to pagan mindsets. Don't give over, be given over to a humanistic mindset. There's a reason in the scriptures, in Ephesians chapter 4, he said, put off the old man which is corrupt according to deceitful us and be renewed in the spirit of your... We need our minds washed. That's how your soundness of mind... You'll have, you'll have a sound mind if you can interpret and apply the scriptures to your decision-making process in life. It will bring... What is it, Proverbs chapter 3? I've memorized this block, and it talks about being help to thy navel and marrow to thy bones, trusting in the Lord with all thine heart, leaning not to thine own understanding, in all thy ways acknowledge him. You want a soundness, seek ye first the kingdom of God. That's the directive for it. Regarding anger, James chapter 1 and verse 20, for the wrath of man worketh not the what? Righteousness of God. Fear and anger cannot be the prevailing response of believers. If we are to consume all of our spiritual resources, and we could even talk about just resources, not just our spiritual resources, and all of our priorities into making a Christian nation, we must be careful. <clears throat> I'm not talking about preaching truth. I'm talking about instead of doing the things that God wants us to do, we've put it the priority of life, saving the nation, trying to make it Christian. Note this paragraph. If we do that, the danger will be that we'll distort a gospel and biblical identity. This is true. You can look in history to see it. Look at the Western world. Take some time and go over much of, just, you know, Google it, you know, Europe. You look at all of the religious Christian Europe. And to this day, much of Europe would identify itself as Christian. So let me ask you a question. Are they all Bible-believing Christians? No. That's what I'm referring to here. Some of that really came out of the Crusades to identify as a Muslim or to identify as Christians. And this is exactly describing what they did in those times. They put all their spiritual resources, we've got to save the world from the Muslim invader. Now, there may have been governmental reasons, geopolitical reasons to do that, but they made it a religious affront, and children are identified as Christians, and they've never, ever been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. 
They've never come to the saving faith of Jesus Christ. And so they're growing up in a religion of Christendom, in a religion of Christendom, and Christendom should never be seen as a religion. It is a regeneration. It is a sanctification, if you will. And we're at the precipice in America sometimes where that's the essence. The focus put on a Christian nation upon people that named the name of Christ, but nothing about them really is biblical. We cannot afford in this day and hour to be confused about what kingdom we belong to. God has left us a clearly communicated outline of behavior, even even in a pagan society. And so that we're in Titus chapter 1. And you'll note the bottom and the back are all blanks. There are 28 things I want to give you. But we're not going to do them all this week. Let me give you a brief overview of Titus. I've mentioned already he's sent to Crete. He's going to ordain elders. He's, he's doing missionary work here. How is he going to be successful? And, and if we could break this down in an in easy way, in chapter 1 of Titus, you have the right leadership the right leadership. And he's, Titus chapter 1 is where you're going to find a lot of the qualification of the pastor, bishop, elder, etc. These are his qualifications. Um, and you can note these in verses number 5, 6, 7, not self-willed. Notice verse 7. Blameless, steward of God, not self-willed, not angry, not given to wine, not a striker, not given to filthy lucre. And put that as a juxtaposition against verse number 12. He is the opposite of the culture. It's the right, right leadership. And then chapter 2, you have the right interaction. So these saints, having been redeemed out of this pagan culture, they've adhered together in an assembly. And everything's hunky-dory now, right? No. They have flesh. They now need sound doctrine in every aspect of their life. You look at chapter 2. But speak thou the things that become... Sound doctrine. If you study through Titus, you'll find that phrase mentioned at least three or four times, these things. And it's referencing back, I think, to the sound doctrine. And then he's going to tell them, not only have the right leadership, you've got the right interaction. In chapter 2, the aged men, the aged women, the young men, the young women, the servants in verse number 9. Be faithful, don't be purloined, don't be stealing. All the right interaction you're going to have, and now you come to chapter 3. And you've got to have the right behavior towards the culture. The right, if I can put it this way, the right way that God wants you to behave yourself in any society, but especially a society like Crete that is full of liars and evil beasts and slow bellies. And so let me just give you quickly, maybe we'll just get through this first part this morning. But we're going to bring right out of here out of Titus chapter 3. The first thing that he mentions to him, notice if you will, verse 1 and 2. He says, put them, who's the them? Is that society? Right leadership, right interaction, right behavior, who's the them? It's the believers. Put them. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawler, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. 
We'll read verse 3 as well. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers, uh, divers lust and pleasures, living in malice, envy, hateful, and hating one another. So what's the first thing you're going to do and you're in a pagan society? First thing you need to keep in mind, number one, recognize your position. Recognize your position as a child of God. Your behavior that you take matters. You're not having an efficacious effort to talk about how much someone is a Christian if their life and their attitude or actions are just like the Cretes, the Cretans, if you will, the individuals from the island of Crete are. If you're behaving exactly like them, it's counterintuitive to what God wants you to do. Notice the first one there, and there's seven things. If you want to call it, you could, you could almost look at it as, as seven, seven virtues. In fact, it's where the 28 things come from. There's four things he's going to command, and each one of them have about seven things to it, and that encompasses chapter three. Number one, recognize your position. All right, as a position, I'm a child of God, but I live under a governmental system. What should be my attitude in my position as a citizen here in this world? Number one, be subject. Be subject. Now, I would note the word there is a really interesting word. It's tasio, it's the Greek word. And it, it means arranged in order. That's what it means. And we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago. You'll find uh, that the believer's life is always about submissiveness. In fact, you'll be hard hard-pressed to find any godly individual that was rebellious that God actually used and didn't judge. Saul would be one of those. He was rebellious. What happened? Judgment. Submissiveness is in keeping with the will of God. And there's all, it's used in so many ways. You know, you, you could talk about Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22, be ye subject one to another. We spoke Ephesians chapter 5 just the other week about husband and wife submission there. You could talk about children, Ephesians chapter 6, being subject one to another. You could talk about, I'm sorry, being submissive to their parents. They are subject one to another mostly a lot of times, but uh, anyway, subject one uh, to their parents. You could talk about submission within the realm of an assembly. Um, uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians, he talks about, in Hebrews chapter number 13, he talks about the elders that rule in Timothy. So there's a submissiveness that is present there. In Romans chapter 13, you're to be subjective to the powers that be. The reality is there are so many places in life where my attitude needs to be submissive. That's a general thing. When it comes to government, when it comes to ministry, marriage, parenting and all, there's often one prepositional phrase that would do us well to consider, and that prepositional phrase is in the Lord. All power comes from God. Where does the U.S. government get the right to make the decision and place laws over me? Where do they get that right to do that? Where do they get it? They get it from the God of heaven who has all powers. That's why three times in Romans chapter 13 they're taught the minister of God. God gave him the power. What's the power behind all the governments of the world as it is that they have a right to rule? I'm not talking about the power that influences their rule. That power comes from God. It's God that allowed the setting up of nations. It is God that brings down nations. It is God that judges nations. This is part of the narrative of Daniel. Daniel. 
uh, in chapter 6 and 9 where he sees the vision of the coming kingdoms. It will be God that brings those conclusions. It will be God that sets up a future thousand-year kingdom, if you will. All of this, that authority comes from God. And you and I, as Bible-believing Christians, one of our responsibilities is to be subject. Have a level of submissiveness that is present. He continues with a second thing. He says uh, to be subject to principalities and powers. Uh, principalities, perhaps you could look at it as rulers. We don't just have a king. And I doubt there's any kingdom where the only authority is just the king. There's all these thing that comes to mind immediately is minions. <laughs> but these lower vassals, if you will, that ex- exercise th- authority. That's the way it was with Darius uh, during the time of the Persian Empire. He had three presidents and 120 princes under those three presidents, and Daniel was chief. Whose authority by which did they make decisions? The kings. That's the idea of principalities, varied rulers, if you will. You look at power, that's the authority behind it. Then he continues, he says, not only to be subject, but obey them. Uh, I'd hearken back once to that prepositional phrase, in the Lord. Anytime a society especially true in a godless society. But when that society demands of its people to do something that God has expressly forbidden, what is the responsibility of those people to do? Who should they obey? God or man? Who should they obey? God, absolutely. That's what that means. Anytime you have parents, you have children... And the parents were requiring of those children to do something expressly that God forbid. What should the, chi- the children would be right in disobeying? Would they not? In the Lord, there's no exacting, overreaching, super authority. Now, there may be consequences to it. But the preeminent authority in my life as a child of God is always, ultimately, the word of God. That's the directive in life. I'm to be subject. I'm to be obedient. Notice the third thing, if you will. This last part of verse number one, he says, ready to every good work. Man, I'd speak to you for a moment about a testimony that Christians ought to have in their society. I know that a lot of good Christian deeds for society got hijacked with the social gospel. There used to be a time that, well, I'll give you, anybody familiar with General Howard of the Revolutionary War, 1860s? He's a Union general, and he was aide-de-camp and a ranking commander under Sherman during Sherman's march to the sea. Um, I forget his first name. It's General Howard. But uh, when, when uh, Sherman was coming up through Atlanta and he's burning this big swath, you know, and everything, it was destructive. And then once the enemy had retreated from him, you're left with civilian population that are in need. They need food. They need medicine. Some of them, it wasn't, I mean, they're not, they weren't soldiers. And so then they would go to the military commander. They would, they would set conference up, mayors and governors and whatever. They would set conference up with Sherman and ask Sherman, we need help. You know, your soldiers came in and they pillaged the land. They took the food. We don't have any food. We've got children and old folks. We need help. And you know what Sherman would tell them to do? He had a derogatory name for him. He said, go see Howard. Let him take care of it. Howard was a God-fearing man. Sherman thought he was God. They were polar opposites. 
but Howard was a man of compassion. Now, it's a time of war. We often focus on Christians and in that particular time frame on the southern side. But Howard was a godly, a good man in that regard. And it was marked by his ability and his desire to be good towards others. And again, I, I note that churches used to do a tremendous amount. You'd have food banks and this and all this other kind of stuff. And that was a place people could go from time of help. And really, they still do it today. There's a place for you and I to look into that role and being able to perform every good work. This is what we do. You know why? Because it's counter to the culture you live in. That world out there is not really as compassionate at all. I would say that it's probably less compassionate today than it was 50 years ago. Would you agree with that statement? I had a friend of mine, he's passed away, but he's from Pennsylvania, and he said back there in the 30s and 40s, his daddy would load him up in a car, and they would drive from Pennsylvania all the way to Florida. And that intrigued me, and I said, how's that possible? So we got in the car and we drove. And I said, I know, but that would, like, take forever. There was no interstate system. And how long does it take to get to, like, Orlando today from Pennsylvania? Anybody know? 14 hours? Okay, well, can you imagine if there's no interstate system? You ran through town after town after town. He said, oh, it would take us, like, two, three weeks. He said it would change. And I said, why did it change? He said, well, he said, we just kind of knew where we were going. I had an uncle that lived down there. We were going to stay for him for a month. But we would take, it would take, a long time to get down there. It was, it was a great trip. Oh, what do you do for two weeks? A week of travel? I said, what? And he began to tell me. He said, oh. He said, we'd leave and we'd go down here. And he said, we'd just pull off and there would be a gas station. And we'd talk to the proprietor. And he'd leave the bathrooms open for us. Sometimes in the community, somebody would see us and see a Pennsylvania plate on the back. We'd tell them we're going to Florida. Come on over. Let me feed you. Can you imagine doing that today? There was a goodness. There ought to be a goodness among Christians, even towards your society in a sense of being able to hate. Is not this commanded by the Lord? Do good unto them that despitefully use you. Notice he says, number four, speak evil. Speak evil of no man. The word speak evil has the idea of being a blasphemer. If you will, a railer. Now, and a railer is not someone that lays railroad ties, you know. But the idea of a railer is one that speaks in such a way of their, their, with their mouth, it incites violence in others. Speak evil of no man. Next, not a brawler. It's easier to explain this one by giving you an antonym, an opposite one. The opposite would be a peacemaker. Now, I, I know some of you would say, well... That means he needs to carry a pistol. No, I'm teased a little bit, but a brawler. It's one that is a man that seeks, or an individual, a woman, you know, that seeks to be at peace. They're not looking to stir strife. By the way, this is one of the qualifications given of the, the bishop in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 3. Next, we have this one um, there in verse number 2. So, to be no brawler, but... Gentle, gentle. You know what that has the idea of? Patient. It has the idea of being mild. I think of James 
chapter 3 and verse 17, and he talks about the wisdom that is from, of the abo- from above, and that it is first what? Gentle. And correspond this to Philippians chapter 4. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Attitude that ought to be. Is not gentleness one of the fruit of the Spirit? Isn't it? Yeah. How should I behave in a pagan culture? I recognize my position as a citizen. I'm to be gentle. I'm not to be a brawler. I'm not to be an evil speaker, a blasphemer. Um, I'm not to lie about people. I'm to be ready for good work. I'm to submit, obey. And then finally, let me give you this last one. Right there in the text, verse number two. Showing meekness to all men. That's a difficult one sometimes to swallow, I think. What if they're not reciprocative? What if they don't respond in this manner? You know, anytime I find the word meekness throughout scriptures, I often think of Moses. I mean, Moses is a unique guy. Is there any question that Moses loved God? Is there any question that Moses was a man of God? I mean, God gave him the opportunity to speak with boldness. The Lord appeared unto him. He got to commune all the days on the mountain of God. He goes before the most powerful man in the world and watches all of these plagues as that man hardened his heart against the commands of God. This is Moses. Moses, the same one who God empowered and the Red Sea split in twain and they did follow through on dry dust. But during the 40 years wilderness wandering, you, you have Korah. And Korah sets himself against Moses. What would be your thought? If you were opposed and you had a rod. But if you read that narrative, that is not Moses at all. He's not a perfect man. But so, and I, I don't know that he, I don't know that God could have used any other type of man. Forty years wandering with rebellious people that are going to complain read a scientific study, they said 30 minutes of complaining is almost irreparably damaging to your brain. I don't know if it's true or not. I read it online. I don't know. Some people would say it is. <laughs> it's online. What would be your response towards that? Well, Moses, the scripture says, the meekest man in all the earth. That's a powerful sentiment. The presence of God in his life was just not a profession of his mouth. It was the action of his life. And so is true in a pagan society, and no doubt even this society we live in, a responsibility to recognize your position in Christ and therefore how that position ought to impact the actions of your life, even today. Be gentle. Be meek. Ready for good work. Speaking evil of no man. Subject recognize Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541 Harrisburg, Pennsylvania 17112 and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org Until next time, 